with somebody who I would love to, I'd love to speak to and I wanted to speak to for some time now, and that is Andrea James, I'm founder and executive director of the National of the National Council. Um, and we're going to get into a whole lot of things from um, her, how she got involved with um, the National Council, how she got involved with, with helping people get out of jail, but more importantly, um, her feelings about prison and prison abolition and a bunch of other things. So without further ado, um, Adrian, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mecca. Thank you so much for inviting me and helping us to amplify, lift up the stories behind the work of ending incarceration of women and girls. Yes, yes, man. So um, um, I know a lot about you. I've, I've had a chance to learn a lot about you through your, through just on being online and also through your daughter. But for those who don't know, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you do. Well, as you know, you started out speaking about my family. I, I my daughter, uh, Ari and Sashi and, and Pearl and my husband and my son, Lucky, uh, we're a family of abolitionists that are advancing this, this work started. Um, I'm a former criminal defense attorney in Boston, Massachusetts. I was sentenced to serve a two-year federal prison sentence back in 2009 for uh, transgression, a real estate conveyance transgression out of my law practice uh, that happened back in 2006. And so that resulted in me being uh, sent to prison for two years. Um, And I served a two-year federal prison sentence starting in 2010. And I had just given birth to my last child, uh, my son, uh, we call him Lucky, and um, John Jr., but we call him Lucky. And uh, at that time, I had two young adult daughters, Ari and Sashi, and I had also uh, left behind a 12-year-old baby girl, uh, all adults now except our youngest son, Lucky. So that was uh, an extraordinarily transformative period in my life. Um, I grew up in Roxbury in the most incarcerated corridor on the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which happens to be where I still live in a house where five generations of our family have lived in, in Roxbury. And from Nubian Square to the Franklin Hill uh, 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 housing development, uh, Franklin Hill, Franklin Field housing developments is the most incarcerated corridor in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Eric Cador describes these blocks as million dollar blocks meaning that in excess of a million dollars has been spent entangling and churning in and out Black people from our community in and out of the carceral system. That includes, including jails and prisons, that includes parole, probation, uh, ankle shackles, which some refer to as electronic monitoring and so forth. So um, very, uh, you know, I have bring to this space, this abolitionist space, uh, a unique perspective, having been somebody grew up growing up in the most incarcerated corridor in the Commonwealth, still living here, someone who became, was an organizer in my neighborhood my entire life as a young child to a young adult, becoming a criminal defense attorney, standing in countless courtrooms, defending black and brown people against this system, and then uh, becoming an incarcerated woman myself. Wow, you know, and I mentioned to you, I'm a Bostonian myself, I'm from Mattapan, and I totally understand those corridors, you know, where, where I've watched since I was, since growing up in the, in, the, in the city, man, I've watched so many of my good friends get locked up through that system. I watched my cousin, rest in peace, Kevin, get locked up in the same deal. So uh, thank you so much again for the work you have done. Um, as a founder as a founder and executive director of the National Council, you've been holding that position for over a decade. Um, talk to us about how that came about and how that, how that position came about and what, how you became part of the organization. 
Well, yeah, it, and actually, so when we went, so when I walked into that prison, I left these children, my babies, my husband, my parents who took me to that prison to surrender myself and to begin this two year sentence. Uh, you know, I, I left them there and walked into a prison with this alchemy of all of these life experiences, this alchemy of the personal experience I just described to you as a woman growing up in a community like ours, but also uh, 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 combined with my professional experience as, as, as a criminal defense attorney and, and organizer and community organizer. And um, to walk into that prison, you know, I was, had the, my, my parents were, uh, and still are 91 and 88, uh, uh, researchers of African people of African diaspora. So I grew up visiting these places that uh, taught us about uh, the slavery of history, which the criminal legal system is nothing more than the next iteration of slavery for our people. There is absolutely no legitimacy to the criminal legal system as a result of its underpinnings and roots in slavery. And so I remember visiting uh, Gore Island and seeing uh, uh, the, the relics, the remnants of slavery in these places in, in Africa, in Western Africa. And, and you know, um, when I walked into that prison and as I settled into the prison and on top of my bunk where, where I was assigned as, an, as what we referred to as an upper bunkie, I was in an upper bunk and looked around a sea of predominantly black women uh, crammed into this prison. It reminded me, I re remember thinking, my God, of course, in much more extreme conditions and, 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 and death-like uh, conditions, it reminded me of what uh, a slave ship uh, looked like. Yeah. And so um, we started to organize ourselves in that prison. We started to talk about, you know, two th let's put this in context with the time frame. When I was in prison, it was 2010. And 2010 was the year that a lot was happening in this country around an uptick in dialogue around the need to end what they referred to then as mass incarceration. And that included Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, um, the age of, of, of mass, incarcer mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. It included this uh, 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 scathing uh, uh, expose by the Media Democracy Center about an organization called the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, which was, is still funded by the Koch brothers and billionaires who were intent on lifting up their libertarian agenda and eradicating um, all forms of, of support uh, by the government of people who have, are in struggle. But in addition to that, um, lifting up the only thing they believe in investing in are prisons and law enforcement and the military. So th th these things were all coming in front of us. None of the conversations as these two things in particular and Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, The Golden Gulag, all of these things that we studied in the prison, none of these things really spoke from the voice of incarcerated women. None of them lifted up what the 2000 plus women in this federal prison in the hills, in the mountains of Danbury, Connecticut, all of these women that had been extracted from their communities and removed and, and disappeared uh, from their children, from their spouses, from their partners, from their parents, uh, mostly from their children and their communities. None of them spoke from the voices of us who were women sitting in the prison, listening to this uptick. Um, and so we, we were determined. We sat in the prison yard one day and we 
threw the gauntlet down and challenged ourselves and said, we're going to change this. We're going to bring in the voice of the most directly affected women into this conversation so that people know the level of disruption, the level of destruction, particularly to Black families, to Black mothers. You know, and I'm going on and on, Mecca, but I want to point something out because a lot of people, when they think about mass incarceration, which we don't use that term, we're abolitionists, shut it all down. But when we talk about mass incarceration, people usually refer back to the 1994 Crime Act and a crime act ushered in by the president, uh, current President Biden and by uh, 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 then President Clinton as one of the most destructive policies that have significantly harmed black and brown communities in this country, particularly black communities. But they don't pay attention to the thing that most disrupted and destroyed black families. Currently and then 85% of currently incarcerated women are the were the primary caretakers of their children prior to them being placed in a prison. Well, so too was the case then. The Adoption and Safe Families Act was a policy that was ushered in under the Clinton administration along with the uh, uh, 1994 Crime Act. And that gave a way for states to adopt these policies and every single state in the country did that created a threshold. If you are absent from the lives of your children for 15 out of 24 months, which was just the beginning, many states like Georgia have lowered that even more. If you are absent 15 out of 24 months, the state automatically shall, shall uh, begin the process of ending your parental rights. I'm gonna tell you something the level of disruption and struggle and, and destruction of black families, the stealing of black children from black women, because nobody took into consideration as bad as that policy, that national policy was, no, and how discriminating that policy was, nobody took into consideration the fact that you were talking about the destruction of black families the separation of black mothers from their children never did never did and, and we can really get into the war on drugs and how that affected it you talk about the the myth of the crack baby and before you know it you got mothers being snatched off the streets and, and again i grew up in an era where i knew a lot of brothers who didn't have a mother or father you know they, they was they, right. was, just, they was just in well, school with us and, and you know what was happening during that so-called crack era in our neighborhoods right was the fact that Wall Street was going through a crack era as well. Mm-hmm. But Wall Street wasn't, uh, a, they weren't looking for crack on Wall Street. No. They, there was a, the, the majority of people that use crack cocaine in this country are white people. That is not who it took years before the first white person was ever even arrested in the country for possession of crack cocaine. Wall Street was rife with not only the use of what they say, oh, the elite powder cocaine drug was, Wall Street was rife with the use of crack smokers, wealthy white men who were engaged in parties and crack smoking. That did not decimate Wall Street. That drug did not tear apart the the economic underpinnings of capitalism in this country. It did though, because of the current state, because of policy of, uh, of, of black communities. So there's a, there's a difference. We, we want to talk about a drug and that sometimes somehow it mysteriously affected black communities. It, you know, things happen for a reason, but it was happening all over this country. But the, the, the response to that was law enforcement, police, 
uh, 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 incarceration and death of the black communities. Yeah, yeah, they weren't they weren't arresting people on Wall Street. They were arresting people on Devon Street. <laughs> they were spending a lot more time doing that. That's right. You know, and speaking about the war on drugs, you know, um, I'm in a space right now, especially in cannabis, where I'm I'm kind of torn. Like I'm from an era where I saw people get arrested for small bags of, 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 of marijuana to where I'm in the rooms now where I'm watching people, even people who look like myself, become almost millionaires over over the same plant. Now, while we're having this conversation, though, there are still people incarcerated for marijuana, especially women. Um, what do you like? Yeah, what are your thoughts on women being incarcerated for marijuana charges while there are wealthy men and celebrities right now currently making money off this? First of all, we're talking about a plant, yeah. okay? People, people, people never should. It was always based on race to criminalize marijuana, a plant, okay, that has more medicinal value than anything that we have on the pharmaceutical big pharma market, okay? And so let's start there the reasons why they criminalized marijuana, all right? And I stood in countless courtrooms, you know, with grandmamas from Dudley Street and, and Orchard Park and all these other places bringing me bags of fruit because they couldn't afford to pay a lawyer. And they would come because their grandbaby, their, their son or their daughter is already incarcerated and their grandbaby just got caught selling a little bag of weed in the park. And so, you know, we, in addition to uh, what you're talking about, people still being incarcerated, the federal system is full of people who are still serving life with no parole for uh, marijuana. In addition to that, ironically, when this became an industry and shifted over in many of the states to, to legalizing cannabis and cannabis sales, and, and making a market out of that, an industry out of that, they still found, this, this is the problem of the racialized underpinnings. They still found a way to keep our people out of it. And so as people still are incarcerated for marijuana, as people still in states like Georgia and other states that haven't legalized it still will be arrested and incarcerated for it, as people in the federal system are still serving life with no parole sentences for marijuana, people are capitalizing on it. And what we saw here in Massachusetts as the Cannabis Commission was created and as they started to build out the, the policy around the sale of cannabis, who were the first in line to get those licenses? Former <laughs> sheriffs, real talk, mm -hmm. former sheriffs, former district attorneys, some of the most racist and vile uh, uh, district attorneys in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts now hold two and three cannabis shop licenses, dispensary licenses. A former sheriff holds a, a dispensary license and still, when they created the policies that allowed those of us with felony convictions to be considered, they call it an equity project or something they call Social it. Social equity. Social equity. We still haven't implemented it fully here in Massachusetts, one. And two, there are still carve-outs, which is not abolitionist. It's not non-reformist reform. When you have carve-outs. So somebody like myself, uh, who went to prison for wire fraud, the only people who can benefit, and thank God for that small, but it's called a cavo, that can benefit are people who have prior drug convictions, 
okay? Because they're saying, well, we got to give the people who are most directly affected. Meanwhile, the, the same prosecutors that churn these young black and brown people through the system, the same sheriff that locked them in cages, get to have multiple licenses as many as they want. Not to mention how preclusive the cost is to getting into this industry. And simultaneously, we know the underpinnings of racism is all, is all that this is about nothing to do with public safety, because at the same time, Mecca, they were uh, uh, bringing in uh, a new, another new industry called the, the digital transportation industry. And the same type of car votes were built into that to keep black and brown people with uh, convictions from, from being able to participate in that industry. So two brand new industries that are bringing people millions and millions of dollars now except for a tiny sliver, a tiny sliver. The cannabis industry is a white men's industry. A tiny sliver of black folk are benefiting from it. They should rightfully so, but all of these carve outs and these policies that continue to undergird racism and structural racism in industry and economics shouldn't exist. I agree. I agree, man. You couldn't have said it better. Um, talk to us about the Free Her campaign and, and what your plan is to get 100, 100 women um, clemency. Well, the free, the, so the 100, 100 women campaign was a campaign that we launched as part of our overall Free Her campaign. Okay. The Free Her campaign is a national campaign to close women's jails and prisons and to reallocate that funding into the lives of women most directly in, it, affected by the carceral system and their communities, okay? And so we have an entire infrastructure that does that, that's built up around policy, uh, 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 legal, uh, movement lawyering, policy, reimagining communities, which is our hyper-local organizing model. And then of course, a campaign, literally a distributed organizing, integrated organizing campaign to close women's prisons starting in our battleground, first battleground states of the New England states. The New England states are close in geographic proximity. Those of us like you from New England kind of know the feel of New England, but we also, in addition to being close in proximity, have the uh, women's prisons with the lowest incarceration populations in each of those states. So each of, the, each of these states have just one women's state prison in them. And so they're ripe for creating what a model of what different looks like. How do we take the 65 women that are currently incarcerated in one tiny building that sits in the heart of Burlington, Vermont and shut that building down, close that women's prison, create individual exit plans for each of those women and reallocate the hundred thousand plus dollars a year that it costs us to incarcerate a woman and the millions of dollars of fallout that uh, 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 based on what affect incarceration and separating them from their children has um, in general. So um, the Free Her campaign is a massive national push. The hundred day campaign that you referred to, the first hundred days of President Biden's campaign, we were a part of the Obama administration. Yes. We, we worked with President Biden. We were centered by his, his uh, senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, who created a focus on women and incarceration and the need to end it. We went to the White House. We had armchair discussions. Our members met President Obama and we were responsible for helping 50 of the 102 women who were commuted, whose sentences were sentences were commuted by President Obama. And so we expected, we expected when the man who was vice president at that time, 
came into office and also who campaigned. It was black, formerly incarcerated women that stood on the front lines to usher in and to help people to understand our black people who are shouting out Trump because of a, 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 a you know, a first step act that is, is mostly not true what they understand about it. We were women at the front lines trying to educate and bring awareness to what actually is true about these things. So, you know, we expected that President Obiden would uh, stay true to the voting rights uh, promises he made, which are being enacted right now as we speak, the, the, the criminal justice reform that he, uh, 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 you know, that was part of his platform. We haven't seen any of these things. So on his inauguration day, we released 100 women in 100 days. We went to Washington, D.C. We had uh, things all over the place, grassroots organizing. We did a massive campaign. We put 100 names of women, Mecca, from the federal system who he has immediate control over that he can, with the stroke of the pen, provide clemency for. These women are elderly. They're sick. They have terminal illnesses. They're long timers, meaning they've been in prison for more than 10 years. And they are uh, victims of of domestic and sexual violence, we refer to them as survived and punished. These are the four categories that all of the 100 women come from. And with a stroke of the pen, President Biden could provide them with the justice, the relief that they deserve. And we haven't gotten one out yet. So, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to try. You wouldn't have told us back in 2014 when President Obama initiated the clemency project that that would happen and that we would be instrumental in pushing 50 women out of the federal system. So we we all, we hold on to our hope, but we also hold on to our action. Yeah. Have you been happy with the Biden administration so far? Um, no. Uh, you know, we have uh, very specific needs. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, for example, uh, uh, just what's happening in the news today and, and, and uh, you know, now, uh, we have two voting rights bills that we cannot even pass. Why? Because 50 Republicans refuse to even allow these bills to be brought to the floor for debate. Never mind a vote. They don't even want to create a debate. We, the last time we saw this, this, these blocks by the Republican Party was when President Obama, this backlash from a black man being voted in to the presidency. Mm -hmm. And we saw that no matter what, President Obama could not get Congress to pass anything that he was trying to implement, not in terms of criminal justice reform, not in terms of anything, nothing. They made a, they made a pact to not do it. And they're doing the same. They're using that same practice under the Biden administration, because as you can see, Trump is stumping again. He's out doing his speeches. He's got black people who are unpoliticized and unaware standing behind him. And he's galvanizing the black community through rappers and musicians who are brilliant people, but they unpoliticized. They need to stay in their lane. They don't know what they're talking about, shouting out Trump. But over here, Biden is dealing with the same thing. But he's not doing what President Obama did. President Obama had at least the insight to say, I got to do some executive orders. I'm not going to get nothing done with this Congress because they ain't going to let it happen. But guess what I can do? I'm the president of the United States. I have certain powers bestowed upon me. Clemency is one of them, but also executive orders. He banned the federal box on employment uh, uh, under executive orders. He did a whole host of things. He changed the quantities 
He sent an order to his downline through Eric Holder, change the quantities of mandatory minimum of the amount of drugs to trigger a mandatory minimum. Don't charge out. Don't look for the quantity so that you don't have to charge these black people being churned through the system with a mandatory minimum. He did what he could through policy and he did what he could through executive orders. We need that from President Biden right now. We need something. We need something to show us particularly in criminal justice reform and in voting rights, that he intends on standing by what he promised to correct the injustice uh, that he was very much an integral part of creating that was that we're experiencing the follow from right now, which was called the 1994 Crime Act. You know, when people first started hearing the term defund the police, a lot of people got nervous. So I can understand how nervous people are when they hear the term abolish prison. Uh, what does abolishing prison look like to you? Well, you know, first of all, what strikes me so much about fear, right? Um, people aren't really focused on fear because that's the feeling that comes up in people when they think about abolishing uh, prisons or defunding the police. And then when we think about fear, we have to think about, well, where does that fear come from? I'm not afraid of any of our sons who are running around this neighborhood who are causing harm to our <laughs> own people. I'm just not, I'm just not. I can't look at a black boy and be afraid of him. I can understand him because this is part of who I am. This is part of the community that I'm from. And I understand that hurt people hurt people. And I understand that when we talk about abolition, yes, I mean it. I mean abolition, close the prisons, dismantle them because they are rotten from the core. They are the next iteration of slavery in this country. The police are as well. They are uh, rooted in structural racism. And so we have to do something different. And when you have a level of austerity, and this is what I say to people, I don't necessarily try and convince people about abolition because abolition is an evolution. It's about trying things consistently. It's about having the space and the resources to try out what different looks like. That's abolition. We know for sure that the, that the prison system is a proven uh, ineffective failed system, but we never question the billions of dollars that every year we just automatically write a check to continue to support. Proven ineffective, but we never question that. But when we start talking about what different looks like, and abolition and abolitionist principles, all of a sudden there's all this, what, 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 where? Yes. So what I'm what I advocate for as our comrades in this space are, are demanding the defunding and the reallocation of resources into our communities. What I'm also saying, and not but, and what are you what are you spending in your state on your uh, prisons? What are you spending on them? Uh, what, are, what are those things? And we, we have a whole process in our organization that does uh, budgets, lookbacks. Whatever you're spending, you have to match that. Why? Because, you know, this system, we can talk about abolition all day long, Mecca, and we're going to continue to fight for it, and we are going to achieve that, but it's not going to happen overnight. So what we have to do is demand to, a, to, a, to a, uh, get around the fear that so many people have that is based on racism, that's holding these, 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 these investments in place is to say, you have to agree with me that if there is a level, level of austerity over here with what different looks like, 
and investment in the communities most entangled in the criminal legal system. A level of austerity just meaning you ain't invested nothing in these neighborhoods. The million dollar blocks that we started this conversation talking about, the corridor from Nubian Square to Franklin Hill, Franklin Field housing development, if, you, if we can demonstrate in the past 25 years, y'all ain't invested nothing in comparison to the dollars, but the dollar matching dollar for dollar what you've invested in the brothers going to Sousa Baranowski, in the, brother, in the sisters going to Framingham, then what I'm saying to you is match those dollars while we haggle about defunding police, while we haggle about abolition, show us the money. <laughs> we need this investment now. And if you have a problem with that, then you are exposing yourself as a racist who wants to uphold structural racism. And it's just that simple. Hmm. What are your thoughts on the First Step Act? And um, how, well, actually, before I get there, how close are you to actually making that vision happen? How close is the National Council actually making the vision happen of, of abolishing the prison system? Well, you know, we're, we're, we, we eat, live, and breathe this. And yeah. so we're, we're moving. I mean, 10 years ago, when we were in a prison, 11 years ago, organizing ourselves as incarcerated women, I mean, the, the women weren't even talked about, incarcerated women, weren't even discussed. And so you have to look at, you have to kind of take a look back on how far this has come. You, we came out with the goal of, a, of, a, of, a, of an organization that, 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 you know, sought support and, and grant money for us to do this work so that we could begin building what different looks like. And we were told, you're not getting no money because you're abolitionist. Now everybody's an abolitionist. Everybody got ending incarceration of women and girls ringing on their websites and talking about it and so forth. Well, that's, that's putting, putting it on purses and putting it on backpacks, you know, making it a fashion statement now. All of that. I ain't mad about that because we try, we, you know, we do a little bit of that too. But you know, we gotta pay our bills too. But we but also uplifting, uplifting part of this work of abolition is shifting the narrative. Yeah. You gotta understand that. You have got to do things that shift the narrative, right? And so we've come a long way. We now have an entire national organization led by incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women, currently incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and girls that is at the center of what this change looks like. That's huge, that's progress. So we have come a long way, Mecca, and we are continuing on our way in a very strategic plan that we have taken years to figure out how do you operationalize such an amazing audacious goal of any incarceration of women and girls? Well, guess what? We figured that out and we are going to get there. And so the Free Her campaign is that movement. And um, you know, so you have to look at it in, in, in that respect. And when you look back from where we came, we've come a long way and we're gonna to continue to go much further. Yes. Now, um, like I was about to mention about the First Step Act, um, what are your thoughts on the First Step Act and how it only, really only if, uh, uh, impacts a small percentage of people? Well, we were actually, you know, a lot of people weigh in and have a lot to say about the First Step Act, particularly people who just want to lift it up as the greatest piece of criminal justice reform legislation for decades. We, we actually were on the front lines of working on the First Step Act in Washington, D.C., in the meetings, arguing over what should and shouldn't be in there. I was in prison and we started to organize in 2010. In 2010, the Fair Sentencing Act passed. 
And back when the Fair Sentencing and the Fair Sentencing Act passed, uh, what the Fair Sentencing Act did rather is that it closed the disparity from 100 to 1. Imagine that. <laughs> 100 to 1 between crack and powder cocaine. It closed that disparity from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. Not all the way, even though he said, this is nonsensical, don't make no sense, the science don't even uphold it, but we only going to close the gap 18 to 1. But it did. But they did not make it retroactive. Okay, so if you were in prison, serving a mandatory minimum, you didn't get any relief at all. Okay, under the Fair Sentencing Act back in 2010. So we knew those of us who sat in a prison and had to help incarcerated women who were serving mandatory, which is all black people, understand, understand the, 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 the fact that this law that Congress just passed was not going to provide them any relief because they didn't make it retroactive, meaning they only, it only provided relief for people who had not yet been sentenced, okay? So we knew that was 7,000 people in 2010 that could have immediately found relief under the Fair Sentencing Act. So when the, the First Step Act comes along, we didn't even consider it. We thought, well, first of all, the problem is that that's not the first step. The first step was the Fair Sentencing Act. And we could have gone back even further than that. So we cannot have what happens within one administration from President Obama to Trump was a shift from uh, criminal justice reform and decarceration, meaning lowering significantly the numbers, creating avenues for people to come out of prison and to stop the flow of people in. We went from that in one administration to Trump who, who dismantled all of that and created what was referred to as a prison reform bill, not addressing initially any sentencing reform in that bill not doing anything that would write into the bill things that would stop the flow of people in and nothing that was about um, criminal justice reform. It was a prison reform bill. And people have to understand there is a difference. <laughs> Just like there's a difference between criminal justice reform and abolition, there is a difference. And people don't understand that there is a difference between prison reform there is a difference between criminal justice reform overall, and there's a difference between um, uh, decarceration. Those are very different things. And so the First Step Act, first of all, was just a prison reform bill. And we fought against that. We weren't in support of that because of that, because initially it was not still going to even allow any relief for the people who were still in prison. When I was in there in 2010, who got no relief, there were still by then about 2000 people from the 7,000 people left over in the federal prison system. They didn't have any consideration for them at all. The other thing that it did that why we did not and could not support, our membership is made up of women who are doing life with no parole sentences. Well, guess what? The First Step Act for the things, the few things that it did do ultimately for people who were in prison had two and a half pages of carve outs, Mecca. And those two and a half pages, that means carve outs are things where a bill is written, but they say, except you, <laughs> except you, except you. So the, the First Step Act was written primarily for, with a focus only on low, what they call low level uh, convicted people. They call them something else, offenders, but we don't use that language. Low level convicted people. 
those are white collar people that are coming out anyway in a year or two, under five years. Those are uh, low level uh, convicted drug uh, cases. Those are those are predominantly race based cases. And so uh, that was what that bill was. So we as abolitionists, we govern ourselves by abolitionist principles on le on legislation. And you cannot expect us to stand in solidarity behind a bill that has two and a half pages of carve outs. Why would you pass the first uh, uh, piece of, of, of legislation, meaningful legislation in a decade and leave out two and a half pages of people who need it most, the people who are serving the longest sentences? And then the other thing that happened with the First Step Act is that they had these um, talking heads like Van Jones who, who ushered this bill in and, and confused a whole lot of black folks in terms of what it actually did. And, and you know, the Republicans and the Libertarians are phenomenal at, 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 at uh, the spin game. They just are. I mean, Democrats have a lot to learn from them. Yeah. You know, the spin game on how you present something that happens. And the First Step Act was one of those things. Every single person that came out of federal prison, I don't care if you had 25 years on a mandatory minimum and did every day to the door, you were stamped and celebrated as you walked out of that prison uh, with uh, the First Step Act. Look what the First Act Act has done. Meanwhile, nobody talked about the two and a half pages that affected 75% Black incarcerated people in the federal system that actually got zero relief. It ushered in a, a, a risk assessment tool, which is one of the most dangerous tools entrenched in racism that the criminal legal system has ever experienced. A risk assessment tool is a dangerous tool. It is, it is, it is steeped in racism. And so it, we already had a classification system. I went to federal prison and went to a, a uh, federal camp on the grounds of a higher security federal prison. Why did I go to a federal, quote unquote, the section of the camp, the prison that was called the camp? Because it was the lowest classification system in the federal system. So we already have these built-in ways of, 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 of uh, addressing people's classification. But they, they, they created another layer of classification by using this risk assessment tool. And then they left it up to the implementation of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, one of the most dis, uh, 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 just uh, uh, dysfunctional, um, intentionally cruel uh, administrative bodies um, in, uh, under the government of the United States. And so right now, they still haven't fully implemented it. You know, and then under the Trump administration, um, uh, case managers and the people who were supposed to be calculating these 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 good time credits and so forth were intentionally not doing it. And the administration did nothing to actually implement the law. So they're get, they're still today getting credit for something that has not fully uh, been effective. And the last thing I want to say about that buried in that uh, um in that legislation that people don't pay attention to Mecca is a clause in there that is called what we refer to as a carceral capitalism clause. It expands slavery. It expands the work labor of incarcerated people to do work for private corporations. Nobody talks about that. 
<laughs> people don't know. And so what the, what these black folks, these entertainers and these other people who aren't politicized, who don't know about the history uh, and, and the political context of what got us to where we are, they're shouting Trump out. Just talk shit about Biden if you want to, but you're shouting out somebody who doesn't deserve to be uplifted by black people because we can give you a litany, a list of harm that Trump, you want to talk about Trump did the first step back? Well, let's talk about all the other things that Trump did that are directly uh, uh, harmful, deadly to black communities. So that, that's what my beef is with the first step back, how it was ushered in and how it's being erroneously, erroneously lifted up still and providing credit and cover to Trump um, and why the Biden administration needs to step in and do something dramatic to counter that. How can we support the National Council? How can we support what you're doing as far as just people in general? How can they get out and help you help you create some of the things that you want to create and help you get forward some of the things you want to move forward? Well, look, again, we have the National Free Her campaign that launched this year. And so you can get involved. Um, our battleground states starting out are the six New England states. So if you're living in those areas or you care to be a part of helping us to organize in those areas, please you know, get in touch with us. And, and you can go to our website and find out how to do that at nationalcouncil.us. Our entire name is long. It's the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. We're known as the National Council. So you can do that. You can give us money. It takes a lot of money to do the work that we do. That's a true. lot of money. And um, we unapologetically advocate on behalf of women and girls, which is an, uh, still a, a group that a lot of people don't think about and don't particularly care about. Uh, and uh, we also are fighting a narrative that has been promoted in this country by large nonprofits led by people who aren't directly affected, a narrative called uh, reimagining prisons. Well, we have a narrative called reimagining communities. That's not popular with many funders. And so we have a, a, a handful of funders that believe in our work and that help to sustain us, um, not nearly enough. Um, and, the, and the more traditional funders find us, you know, uh, to, to be too abolitionist still for their tastes. So, you know, send us an individual donation on a regular basis. Uh, uh, send a, send a, send a uh, philanthropist uh, to us to hear about our work. We are fully transparent, which is something I cannot say uh, for many of uh, the folks who aren't uh, working in this space or who are working in the criminal justice reform space. Um, from prison uh, administrators on down who choose to not be a, uh, transparent. We are fully transparent in the work that we do. You can, you can write to the White House. You can send an email encouraging President Biden to use his clemency power. If you are in the state, we started under the Trump administration because we couldn't just tolerate uh, dealing with Trump. We started clemency uh, awareness campaign under Free Her in every single state around the country. Contact your governor and tell your governor to free some women through clemency. We, we can do this, we can get there. Um, and we cannot do it though without the will of the people. And so uh, come in, get on board. We do a town hall every Monday that can help you understand why this is important. Lots of ways to get involved. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I really appreciate your words. And trust me, you have a supporter in me. Oh, Mecca, thank you so much. And uh, 
Don't forget your roots uh, here in Roxbury and Mattapan in Boston. We need uh, brilliant minds like yourself. I'm so proud of the work that you're doing. And I thank you for amplifying the voices of those of us on the ground. Thank you so much again for your time. And that's all I need right now.